Um, so here's what I want to do. I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 15. And while you turn there, I'm going to tell you about Leslie and I's very first date. Um, it was a train wreck in some ways. What, what the situation was is her and I were both in graduate school, and she worked for uh, the graduate school. And uh, we, it was a marriage and family therapy graduate school um, our school had a clinic, uh, the Family Psychology Center, and we saw uh, clients that would, uh, and we served the north side of the city that we were in. And she opened the counseling center every morning. It was part of her job, part of her stipend, and so she would open the center about 7.15 or so. And um, man, I was smitten with Leslie, Leslie Carlton at the time. And thought that she was, the, she was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. So I would get up early and try to be there when she opened up the counseling center. And, you know, I'd work on different ways to say hello and, you know, all that stuff. But for months, she essentially ignored me, all right? Um, it's hard to imagine now. But uh, there wasn't anything about my presence that made an impression upon her. And I was becoming discouraged and had all but given up that I, I might catch her eye as well. And we were getting to the end of the semester. It was uh, the end of April. We were in um, a week, a study week before our finals and some of our rev review boards and those things were coming up. And so there were several folks in our our program that decided, hey, let's take a study break tonight. We will go to the movies, you know, big group do, everybody from the program will go to the movies. We'll all meet at Leslie's house because she lived across the street from the Dottler movie. Turns out the whole thing was a setup by my roommate, Rip Hardaway, and one of our friends, Kareth Bollinger. And so they'd all put the word out, but the only person that showed up at Leslie's that night was me. Uh, the phone had been ringing, you know, her phone had been ringing, and, and everybody was saying they couldn't make it, and the whole thing was a ruse. And so it's just Leslie and I, and we've got to travel from her apartment across a pretty busy street over to the movie theater. We decided to take her car. The chances of us arriving uh, were better if we were in her car. So we did. She's driving her uh, Honda Accord. I'm sitting in the passenger seat, and all of a sudden, I and beginning to panic because I realized for the dollar movie, which actually was not true, it was a dollar fifty movie, all I had in my pocket was a dollar fifty and it was in change, okay? I was a poor graduate student. There I was, uh, the moment of my life, the, the, the date of all dates with this beautiful woman and all I have in my pocket is a dollar fifty and I'm beginning to panic because... Um, uh, the world had not changed yet. Guys still held doors and, and bought movie tickets. Um, today, it wouldn't matter. But then, it did matter. mattered to me. And I'm thinking, I do not know what to do. All of a sudden, this thing has turned into a date or at least something more than a group occasion. And um, in my panic, she parked the car. I got out, ran up, bought my ticket, and went into the movie theater. It's the only thing I could think of. <laughs> All I was trying to do was avoid the awkward moment there when the lady said, well, you know, one ticket or two tickets. I mean, I just, and the only thing I could do, it felt like, was to run and to beat her in there. 
So that's how it started. Um, turns out, she'll tell you, she didn't even really notice uh, what was going on, thankfully. And then we, uh, turns out we got married, as it, as it turns out. So that's really good. It, but it, um, but, but let, let me say it this way. It, it's when a, uh, it's a perfect illustration of when a, a blessing becomes a burden. It was an incredible blessing, man. All of a sudden, there I am. I'd been, you know, hoping for this and wishing for this and thinking about this, plotting it, and all of a sudden, there I am in the middle of it. The blessing had, had kind of come to me, and, and yet, it came to me, and in a moment, it just became a burden. One writer puts it this way. One can have what seems like a great privilege and yet find real problems with that privilege. It's something like when one has and believes in the promises of the living God, you can discover that that believing part can become difficult. It's a high privilege to have the promise but to go on believing is not always a piece of cake. It's where we are this morning in Genesis chapter 15. Look at it with me. This is how Moses is writing it. He's, you know, he's writing to the Israelites. They're wandering in the wilderness. They've been redeemed from their slavery in Egypt. Moses is answering the question, who is God and who are we as his people? And they are in the process, they are in the position of having to trust God. It's a great blessing of being delivered and redeemed by God. And yet it has come, likely at the writing of Genesis, the place of, of burden. Here's how Moses records it, Genesis 15. I'll read the first six verses. We'll pick back up with the rest of it in a little bit. After these things... The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven, and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. If you would, would you bow with me? Father, I pray you'd help us this morning to hear these words and to, and to see them. You, you, your word comes, and with it a vision. And Father, we want to hear the word. We want to see the vision. We want to be drawn into the drama here. Father, we want to be drawn in because we want to be changed and drawn 
toward your son, Jesus. And so we ask this, we pray this, we, we beseech you these things in the name of your son, Jesus, and by the power of your spirit. Amen. What starts there in verse 1, it says, after these things. So, we looked at Genesis 12 last week, and I guess the best way to do it is to give you a little context. After these things, it's, it's probably 10 years. It, it actually could have been a little more than 10 years since we last left Abraham last week, or Abram at the time is known. He built two altars. Remember, God calls him out of the Ur of Chaldeans, brings him through Haran, then takes him down into the promised land, promised him that his name would be great, he would become a great nation, he would have a land that his offspring, his generations would occupy forever. It would be his land. And so, Abram follows God, and then he sets up these two altars, one in Shechem and one just outside of Bethel. He worships the Lord. And then the last half of Genesis 12, there's a famine. He goes to Egypt, tells a little lie, almost derails the train before it leaves the station. But God looks out for him, blesses him, comes out of Egypt, a rich man. He comes back to the land of Canaan with all that wealth, and then he and Lot, who were together up until that point, they end up having to separate. They've got, they've got too much now to, to all be together, so Lot goes one direction, Abram goes another direction. That's all Genesis chapter 13. And then you get to Genesis chapter 14, and you realize there's a war that is brewing, a war of the kings. There's four kings versus five kings. The, the group of four kings is led by a, a guy named, uh, 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 oh, how do you say his name? Kedorlamer. Keto, uh, and he's got these four kings, and they're kind of pillaging everything. They're kind of like the mob, you know what I mean? He's kind of like the godfather. And in the midst of that war, in the midst of that conflict, Lot gets captured. And with all the stuff and all the things that they've taken and the, and the four kings who had pillaged everything, they head north, they run north. Well, Abram grabs 318 guys. They follow on their heels. They go up there. They, they wipe those guys out. They defeat them. They, they save Lot and bring back all the stuff and go back to present it to the five kings. That's the first part of chapter 14. Then, then there's this real test. I mean, he'd done this hard thing, this old man Abram, leading this ragtag army up, does what seemingly is the impossible, brings all of these back, but then he meets with two kings. One of the kings is the king of Sodom. His name's Barah. Another king is the king of Salem. His name's Melchizedek. His an interesting guy, actually. Shows up three times in the Bible, once in Genesis 14, once in Psalm 110, and then makes a grand appearance in Hebrews chapter um, 4. But you have Abram before these two kings. Now, the first king, Melchizedek, that he meets with, Melchizedek, turns out he shows up, he knows way more about God than Abram knew. But in their exchange, Melchizedek blesses Abram. And then Abram, out of 
thanksgiving and, and uh, you know, acknowledging God's protection and now his blessing through this king who's a priest. He gives him tenth of all that he has. And then he goes from that meeting to a meeting with the king of Sodom, this King Barah. And this guy's kind of a shady character, it turns out. He seems to be very grateful for Abram. He realizes, I think, Abram's name's about to be big. I mean, the guy leads the army, goes up, defeats the kings. Um, people are going to be talking about Abram, and Sodom wants in on the deal, or, or Barah wants in on the deal. He, he wants to write himself into Abram's story. So what he does is he offers him all the spoils, all the goods. You know, Abram, you do this. And Abram, you know, then would become even more of a rich man. But always with the, with the footnote of, you know, it was the king of Sodom that made him so rich. But Abram, in his wisdom and able to discern, he says, you know what? I don't want that. In fact, I don't want it ever to be said that, that anybody ever did anything for me except for God. I'm trusting in God. I'm not trusting in you, Barah. I don't want what you have. I want what God has promised me. This is essentially what Abram's saying. So after all these events that are probably at some 10 or 12 years, Genesis 15 happens after these things. The word of the Lord comes to Abram in a vision. Now, this word of the Lord, it's the first time this appears in Scripture. Certainly not the first time we've seen the word of the Lord. We saw the word of the Lord at creation. But first time this phrase appears, the word of the Lord, and, and, and it comes just in time, and it comes with a vision. Notice the word we're going to have, and then we're going to be given a vision. And it begins, fear not, Abram. It's kind of setting the tone Ten years has happened. Maybe there's a little fear in the air, probably a little doubt on Abram's part. And then he says, I'm your shield and I'm your reward, or your reward will be very great. I think what he's saying is, I'm your reward. I'm your shield, I'm your protection, your defense. Would have been important if you'd just knocked off four kings. It's probably right and natural to feel there's a little danger in the air. And God says, I'm going to protect you. And the reward, contrasting with what Abram refused from Bera, the king of Sodom, God says, don't worry about all that. You, you have a right to leave that behind. I'm your reward, and your reward's going to be very great. It's going to be abundant. In verses 2 and 3, Abram answers God. You can read it like this. I think what Abram's saying is, well, this is great. But I've got one follow-up question and a couple of points to make about it. So, so what will you give me? Because 10 years ago, I left Ur and then again left Haran and came here on a promise promise that my name would be great, I would have offspring, that I'd have children. We both knew at that time it was a long shot, but it's 10 years has passed or more. Now it's a bigger long shot than ever. I'm still childless. 
That seems to be a problem because I've got an heir according to the law. His name's Eleazar of Damascus. If I pass away, the law says all of that goes to Eleazar. And that doesn't sound like what the plan was. That doesn't sound like what the promise was. Notice in verse 3, he turns it back again. He shouldn't say the same thing as he said in verse 2, but he's he's kind of changed the pronouns a little bit. In verse 2, he says, I... You know, I continue childless. And, 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 and three, he kind of puts it on God. You, you, you haven't given me any offspring. So I think what we're seeing here, certainly we're seeing a doubt. I, every commentator you'll read will say, man, hey, Abram's faith seems to be faltering. And sure it does. I mean, He's new at this. His faith hasn't matured. It's a, it's a faltering faith. But it is not the absence of faith. I mean, he sincerely wants to know. He's sincerely bringing these promises back up to God. It, it is faith not fully formed, but it's there. God, you promised me. I, I want to believe. Maybe that's what he's saying. One commentator, Derek Kidner, one of the great Genesis commentators, he says, it's Abraham's faith, not his unbelief, that shines out in this answer. He goes on, a a lesser man would have basked in the comfort of verse 1, but not Abram. He set his heart on more. His heart is set on, he's he's hoping in the, the, the promises of God. And at the very heart of faith, that's what it means. It means to, to trust God. See, the content of faith is God himself and what God has said. Then God becomes the object of our faith. But the act of faith, the act of trusting what God said, That's what Abram's doing. You might define faith this way, a deep internal certainty rooted in our trust of God and what He has said. The act of faith is trusting. The content of faith, this is what we believe. The challenge for Abram comes because he's faced with the difference between what God's promised and what he's able to see for himself. You you ever been in that spot? Trusting God for what he's promised and yet looking around and wrestling with the things that you see? the gap between promise and reality. When you get to the New Testament, it's this gap between the already and the not yet. Already, the Bible says, you're sanctified, you're holy, you're righteous. At the same time, not yet are you those things very much. 
You're still wandering through life in the meantime, wrestling with sin, battling sin, battling your doubt, battling the unbelief that comes along, struggling with the circumstances, enduring hardships and sufferings and sicknesses, Believing there's a day you'll be whole. Believing there's a day you'll be glorified. That you'll be resurrected. Your loved ones will be resurrected. That you'll live forever in the presence of God. That's the promise. That's the, the source of our hope. That is, you know, that, that, that's where our faith is. We believe God for those things. And yet we look around and the reality is seemingly just the opposite. why we find comfort in places, you know, where Paul says outwardly we're wasting away. Yes, I know. But inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. Some of the problems, time, I mean, you know, time, it stretches our patience. The longer things go, the harder it is to be patient. Promise was made in 12, but after 10 years or 12 years, nothing seemed to have changed, and, 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 and yet the promises really mattered to Abram. He's caught up in them. He wants them. They're, they've become precious to him. He, he wants to be sure of them. Only faith does that. Another writer said, unbelief spits on promises. Faith struggles over them. Uh, unbelief dismisses promises. Faith debates them with God. The very struggle over God's Word is the beginning of assurance. That's good to remember. The, the struggle that you engage in in the meantime, in that gap, is part of the assurance. It's it's part of what knows that, hey, listen, you, your, your faith in God, that, that the content of your faith, he's real. And that your faith has taken hold of him, and the Holy Spirit has in return taken hold of you, actually taken hold of you far greater than you've taken hold of him, has not let you go. Well, in 4 and 5, not only is there a word, God's going to give him a word of assurance and then a sign. Look, look at this. In 4, there is the word of assurance. And behold, the word of the Lord came, said the man, this man is not going to be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Let me just assure you, Abram, I have not forgotten what I said in 12. I did not misspeak. There are no sort of technicalities that are going to fulfill this promise in some other way. I said it, I will fulfill it. This is the word of assurance. And then he, then he does something that's actually astounding. In verse 5, he takes him outside. He says, look up at all the stars. Look up there. You see all those stars? Your descendants. That's what they'll be like. Number them if you can. So shall your offspring be. Abram sees the stars. 
God takes him sort of outside of his, you know, his, his, his viewpoint, the things that he can see, brings him out, has him gaze into the heavens, has him look in a, in a different direction than at himself. Says, I just want to remind you, Abram, that's reality. What you're experiencing or what you're calling reality, it's not reality, that's the reality that awaits you. That's what my promise means. God shows him the stars. He's wanting to engage Abram's mind as hard as imagination so that he can see what he can't see. Remember what Hebrews 11.1 1 says is the, is the definition of faith we have in the Bible. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So in verse 6, God does something that's actually more miraculous and loving and gracious, mind-boggling and startling than anything we've seen up to this point. What God does is He takes this man, Abram, who has believed God's Word, hung on to those promises, steps outside, looks up at the star, and dares believe there's believe the God who's made that promise. And then what God does is astounding. He looks and says, Abram, that faith that you trusting me, I'm going to count that trust. I'm, that belief that you have in me, I'm going to count that for something else that you need. See, Abram, what you need… you probably don't even fully understand what you need, but the rest of the Bible is going to sort this out and explain it, and the weight of it will come more true and more, uh, with more clarity till you get all the way to Romans chapter 4, and Paul, he's going to be wrestling this out, and he's going to be talking to the church about it, and he's going to actually take this moment then, Abram, to look back at you and say, this was the moment God did this thing, because we needed something so great. We needed what Paul's going to say is a righteousness, because what you and I need is this moral purity, this, uh, we, we need to meet these moral demands. We need a virtue that is beyond our capacity. We need a purity that's beyond our achieving. We need a perfection that we can never claim. buy it. We can't work our way into it. We need something that we can never get our hands on, never accomplish, never cause to come true. We need this to stand before a holy 
God. What we need is righteousness. We need to be made right. Because the moment sin entered the world, everything went wrong. Everything became stained with sin. There's no part of your life that wasn't stained with sin. And what God does in Genesis 15, verse 6, is the most startling thing up to this point in the entire Bible. As he takes this old man's faith, and he says, you know what? I'm going to count that faith as your righteousness. I'm going to take righteousness and say, you know what? Done. I'm going to count your faith as the righteousness that you need. It's the way Paul says it in Romans 4. Abraham is like this, you know, it's this case study for him. He says, look, at the beginning of Romans 4, righteousness is a gift. You, you receive this gift by faith. And it's not your works. That, that doesn't do it. It's not circumcision, which was the you know, sacred, re religious um, marking that said, I belong to God but your circumcision won't do it. The law won't do it. Even if you kept the law perfectly, it wouldn't be able to do it. What the law does is it, it absolutely is holy. It is good. It is just. But, but one of the things that the law does is that when we read it and, it and it has its way with us, the law leaves us kind of diagnosed as, as people who are sinners worse than we thought we were before we even picked it up. And none of those things will do it. The righteousness you need is only given to you. It's only received by faith. Your works won't do it. Your circumcision won't do it. The law won't do it. None of those have anything to do with the forgiveness of your sins. Righteousness is credited to you. It's, it's, it's uh, made, uh, 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 it, it, it's put on your account to everyone that has an Abraham-like faith in God who raised Jesus from the dead. And when your faith is credited as righteousness, you're justified. It means you're acquitted. You're pronounced righteous. It doesn't mean necessarily just as if I'd never sinned. What it means, it means more than that. It means just as if I had lived as perfect a life as Jesus lived. Because God takes your faith, he counts that as the righteousness you need. Because what he's doing is he's taking the righteousness, the perfection, everything Jesus is, he's putting that on you so that when he sees you, you know what he sees? He sees his son, Jesus. And Paul says that's actually what was happening back in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, when Abraham believed God. God took the perfection of his son and placed it on him. Abraham didn't know that fully yet. He does now. 
When God does that, when he imputes that righteousness, that's the word, the theological word, counts that righteousness towards you. In doing that, what it does is it blots out forever the record of sin in your life. It takes care of all of your sin. It gives you a completely new standing before God. You know, one of the old expositors, a guy named W.H. Griffith Thomas, makes an observation. The original Hebrew word for believed, the, the word behind this word in the Hebrew text, believed, is a word um, that we get the word amen from. Abraham, you might say it this way, Abraham said amen to the Lord, which means it shall be so. It, it, it's as good as done. That's what it means to have faith. Abraham, Abram at this time, trusted God. Growing older, no children, but he believed God. Abram doesn't have a sinless life to offer God. He doesn't have a moral perfection. The text has already been super clear with us about that. But he believes God. And God says, I'll count that as this. The great Charles Spurgeon. I imagine the patriarch standing beneath the starry sky looking up at those immeasurable orbs. He cannot count them to his outward eye long accustomed in the land of the Chaldees to midnight observation. The stars appeared more numerous than they would to any ordinary observer. He believed the promise. He believed it just as it stood. He doesn't say, yay, this must be good, too good to be true. No. God has said it. Nothing is too good for God to do. That's faith. A couple of things I'd say, and then let's move on. I want you to see the covenant here. There's nothing you'll ever give up that God doesn't give back abundantly with himself. Make sure you heard me right. There's nothing you'll give up. There's nothing you'll sacrifice. There's nothing you'll leave behind that, that God doesn't give back to you abundantly in giving you himself. Secondly, when you believe God, you believe him for what he's promised? He covers you with what he requires. When you believe him, you believe him for the promises that he's made, he covers you with what is required of you. What we believe God for is the resurrection of his son Jesus, that death has been conquered, that sin has been forgiven. And that though you and I may breathe our last breath before Jesus comes back and we're buried in a cemetery or 
spread, you know, on a mountainside or into the ocean, that, that we will raise from the dead as well and live forever with our God. Well, beginning in verse 7, God's going to address another promise. The first six verses have been about the offspring. The next verses, the rest of chapter 15, is, is about the land, this, this land that God had promised Abram. It's going to be another word. There's going to be another sign, and then God's going to make a covenant. Look at what it says. He says, I am the Lord who brought you out of the earth of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, Abram said, oh, Lord God, how am I to know I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, and a female goat three years old, and a ram three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought all of these, and he cut them in half, laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them off. He's preparing a covenant. They're going to sign a, a covenant here. They're, they're going to go through the motions, the very formal motions of a covenant. And how it works is two people, they agree that, so whether you keep your side or not, I'm keeping my side. I'm committed to this. I am going to be loyal to this, that there will be nothing that comes in the way of what I said I will do. So God says to Abram, I want you to prepare for this covenant we're going to make. So Abram does. And then what's interesting, in verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. It's a death-like sleep, if you will. It's the same kind of sleep Adam was put in when God made Eve. Abram prepares the covenant, and then God knocks him out like he was dead. And then notice what God does. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain, your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And then they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold... A smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring, I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river of Euphrates. And then he spells out all the people that are currently in the land that are going to be dispossessed of it. Moses is writing to a people wandering in the wilderness headed to that land. And they're just now hearing. This is all according to God's design. You weren't where you were by accident. You're where you were by promise. And he's delivered you. 
and he's bringing you home. As for Abram, here's what's significant about this. The covenant was meant to be walked through by both parties. You cut it in half, you make a walkway, you walk through it one way, you walk back the other way, both people do it. In a sense, what you're saying is if I break the covenant, if anything comes between me and the promises that I've made, me and the covenant that I made, may what happened to these animals happen to me. And yet Abram never walks through them. God makes a covenant with Abram, but he takes the responsibility for both sides. What he's essentially saying is, I will be faithful to you. Whether you're faithful or not, I'll be faithful to you. And if I'm not, may what happened to these animals happen to me. This is the God of the universe accommodating himself, coming down to Abram. I want you to know my, faith, my loyalty to you, my faithfulness to you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I want you to know for certain. We're meant to be drawn into, sucked into the drama here. God's word this morning, it means to leave an impression upon us. This is the living word of God. The word came to Abram. The living, it, it's, it's, to say that it's the living word means that as we read it this morning, it's reading us back, it's examining us, it's piercing us, it's dividing us, it's discerning us. Hebrews 4.12, for the Word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. This passage, we read these, this is meant to draw us in. It's meant to undo us this morning. We're meant to be Affected by it. The faithfulness of God. His commitment, His steadfastness, His loyalty, His love. Oh, there's the faith of Abram, and God says, I'll take that and count it as that. But then God, He, he one-ups or, or 10,000 ups what faith looks like. that he's far more faithful to you than you are to him. Here's what the response is. It's what the Word of God, so it comes at us, it undoes us. The Word of God means not, it means to leave us, not, not the same, not as we were when we walked in here this morning. to bury the seeds of God's truth deep in our heart, to rain upon us, to overwhelm us, so that our response would be that, you know, by faith, we'd say, I, I stake my life on God. 
on the promise that He has forgiven my sins on the basis of Christ's payment, His death on the cross. And I'm staking my life on the promise that although, no, I'll never be righteous in and of myself, no matter what I do, God credits Jesus' righteousness to my account so that when he sees me, he sees Jesus. And because of that, I'm at, I'm at peace with him. Because of that, I know I have an eternal future in the presence of God. Close with a story of an old Hebrew professor. Hebrew professors, they're the craziest. This one is a guy, Dr. John Duncan, they called him rabbi, 1864. One of his students tells a story. He was reading part of Isaiah with the senior class there at the seminary. Something in the text, he said, brings to mind Psalm 22.1. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It was the King James back then. So Dr. Duncan... can tell he's caught up with a verse, and he, he's left his desk. He's bent near double and paces up and down in front of the students' benches. On one hand, he holds his handkerchief and a snuff box. That's what they used to do. The other, a huge pinch of snuff, but these are forgotten. He muses on the Lord's suffering for sinners, turning the matter over in his mind, utterly absorbed. Suddenly a flash seems to go through him. His face lights up. His hands go up. Snuff flies everywhere. And he turns to his class and pleads, I, I, did you know it was? Dying on the cross, forsaken by the Father, do you know what it was? He said it was the condemnation and the curse we deserved. Because he loves us, he took it. And with that, he dropped into his chair and his head straight and stiff, his arms hanging down either side of the chair, his face beaming, tears trickling down his cheeks, repeating in him, Mix between a half sob and a half laugh was condemnation. And he took it. It was curse. And he took it. That's where Genesis 15 leaves us. Shows you a God willing to suffer the curse of the covenant for you. can almost see the nail-scarred hands of the covenant God. That's how deep his commitment to you goes. Do you trust him? It's the only question that matters this morning.
If you would, would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would capture us up this morning. We'd be affected that your word would have its way with us, that we would we'd be undone in the places that we need to be undone. Father, we would hear so clearly the assurance of your commitment and your love for us, the startling, mind-boggling truth that, that our trust in you, us, us believing you for your Son, Jesus, you take that faith and you, you count that as everything we need to stand right before you. So Father, help us to set aside all the other things we're doing to try to save ourselves or to satisfy ourselves or all the things we're doing to try to get your attention or, or to not get your attention, to hide from you, hoping you don't see us. Father, I pray we'd set those things aside with a simple faith. Say, I believe you. I, be I trust you with my life, with what I need, with the forgiveness of my sins. For I trust you with forever. And that, Father, we'd, we'd bask in your grace and your love for us this morning. We ask this the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus, who is our righteousness, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen.